Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. And if you're using the Bibles in the chairs around you, you can find it on page 817. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we are reminded where your word says that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so this morning, Lord, we proclaim you and we rely fully on your power and your wisdom. So, Lord, we come to you this morning. You have the words of eternal life. And so we come at your feet to listen. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our 7th through 12th grade Sunday school class, we are uh, watching a series called Road Trip to Truth. And in one of the episodes, the host, John Fabares, he goes up to college students around different college campuses and, and he asks them this question. What proof would it take For you to believe that God exists. What proof would it take for you to believe that God exists? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? And here are some of the answers uh, that they gave. One student said, Something showing supernatural powers or something out of the ordinary that I witnessed perfectly. Another student said, I would need to see it for myself. And another said, You know, everyone has their own opinion. I'm kind of a see-it-to-believe-it kind of guy. Are you a see-it-to-believe-it kind of person? Would you need to see a supernatural event uh, with your very own eyes to believe in God, to believe in Jesus? Or has something else made you and convinced you to believe? In the scripture text we just read, the scribes and Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they ask him for a sign, most likely to prove his authority. They're uh, they're presenting themselves as see-it-to-believe-it kind of people. And what Jesus says in response, it might seem like it just kind of comes out of left field. He brings up the prophet Jonah. 
Now, over the past uh, month, we've been uh, studying the book of Jonah. And in this passage here in Matthew, Jesus is going to show us that the book of Jonah is actually more than just a book about a prophet and a big fish and the city of Nineveh. The book of Jonah is also a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to look and see how how Jonah was a sign that pointed to the future death and resurrection of Jesus. And the question for each one of us today is this. What will we do with this miraculous sign? With the sign of the resurrection? Will we believe it and, and turn from our sins? Will it change how we live out the rest of our days? Or will you reject the sign and just walk away today? The entire Christian faith stands or falls on the validity of the resurrection. And so this sign, uh, this is the this is sign, this is why Jesus is pointing each one of us today to this sign. Each one of us needs to hear it today and decide if we believe it. And if we do believe it, we need to let it transform every aspect of our lives. So let's first begin with verse 38. And here we see uh, a disingenuous request or, or a fake request. Read verse 38 with me. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now at first glance it might not seem like uh, there's anything fake or disingenuous in their request. But when you look at the context here, you can begin to see how insincere and actually even malicious their intentions were. First of all, this passage here, it's, it's part of a, a larger conflict that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. Throughout this chapter, the Pharisees are watching and challenging every move that Jesus makes. They're, they're following him. Not to listen to him or to obey him, but they're following him to to try to catch him and accuse him and slander him. In this chapter, in chapter 12, twice they have accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Uh, First, when he and his disciples plucked the heads of grain uh, uh, on the Sabbath to eat. And then uh, when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath who who had a withered hand. Then in verse 14, it says that the Pharisees conspired together on how they would kill Jesus. Verse 15 says that Jesus was aware of their plots, but he continued to heal many people. Uh, It says that uh, that many still followed him, and, and it says that he healed them all. He healed them all. So Jesus was continuing to do many miracles despite this plot to kill him. Then we get to the immediate context of our passage in verse 22 when Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who is also blind and mute. After the Pharisees saw Jesus do this, they told the people, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So they're crediting Jesus' authority and power to demons. And that's about as slanderous as it gets, right? Now it says that Jesus knew what they were thinking and saying about him, and so he responds sharply in verses 25 through 37. He defends his powers coming from the Holy Spirit. 
He then calls the Pharisees evil, a brood of vipers, and he describes them as bad trees bearing bad fruit because of the evil that's in their hearts. So Jesus wasn't giving them the benefit of the doubt because he had no doubts about them. He knew their character and their intentions. Then we come to our passage in verse 38. And, and the, the Pharisees, they don't, they don't respond to Jesus' critique. Uh, they just simply answer him with this request for a sign. So in light of the context, we can see that their request here uh, was disingenuous. Uh, we also know that this was an insecure, insincere request because, because Jesus had been doing so many uh, signs up to this point that, that our, our, our request for another sign was really absurd. I mean, that's like, that's like an NFL scout going up to Tom Brady today and asking him to just throw a few passes to see if he would qualify for the NFL. I mean, that'd just be ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But what the Pharisees are requesting is even more absurd. Jesus had healed countless numbers of people. He'd cast out demons. He brought back to life both Jairus' daughter and also the son of the widow from Nain. He had called a storm at sea. Uh, at his baptism, a voice from heaven proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God. And, and then just think about his birth. At his birth, there was a sign in the heavens. There was, there was the star that the, that the wise men followed. And, and of course, then all the angels that, uh, that revealed themselves to the shepherds and proclaimed his birth. So Jesus' whole life and his ministry have been marked with signs again and again and again. So this, this request was absurd, and it, and it revealed how ins, insincere it was. So how does Jesus respond to them? Read with me verse 39. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus denies and condemns their request. This wasn't the only time that he would be asked by the Pharisees to perform a sign right on the spot. It would happen again in Matthew 16, Mark chapter 8, and in John chapter 6 to name a few. And each time Jesus refused to act like a magician and to just perform a sign just for the sake of proving himself. Jesus refused to do a sign when there was no person right in front of him needing mercy. That was Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was mercy and proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins and the coming of God's kingdom. It was not to entertain the crowds or, or to just prove himself. Now perhaps when you read here that Jesus refused to do a sign, maybe you thought, well, why, why couldn't Jesus just do a miracle for the Pharisees so that they would believe? If they see it to believe it, people, why, why doesn't Jesus have mercy on them and, and do a miracle uh, that they, could, they just couldn't refuse and, uh, so that they would believe and be saved? Why didn't Jesus do that? John 2.25 says that Jesus himself knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. And earlier in chapter 12, it says that Jesus knew their thoughts, and so he was very aware that these Pharisees were not coming to him in a genuine pursuit of truth. 
No, they wanted to kill him. And so they were looking for ways to, to test him and to catch him and accuse him. So Jesus didn't do a sign because these men were not wanting to believe. They were hard-hearted. They were not pursuing wisdom and truth. And a miracle wouldn't have changed any of that. And so this is really important for us to understand. Miracles, signs, and wonders do not make people believe. They don't. If you're thinking to yourself that, that you would believe in Jesus today only, only if he were uh, right here and, 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 and he, if he would do right before your eyes a, a great miracle, then this passage challenges you. Would you really believe? Would Jesus in the flesh working miracles before your very eyes, maybe even resurrecting someone from the dead, would that actually change your mind? If you saw it, would you actually believe it? The Bible's resounding answer to this is that miracles do not make people believe in God. Throughout the Bible, we see literally millions, literally millions of people who witness God's miracles and then they still refuse to believe Him and follow Him. There's the Egyptians with uh, the, the ten plagues. And then there's the stubborn Israelites. There's probably about one to two million of them who, who also witnessed the plagues, but then also the parting of the Red Sea, the cloud by day and the fire by night, the water from the rock, the manna and the quail. They saw all these signs, and yet the Bible says that most of them still had stubborn hearts that refused to believe. Then you have thousands of others who witnessed miracles by the prophets. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Or, or those who witnessed miracles done by the apostles. Another example we have is in John chapter 6. It was the day after Jesus had just fed over 5,000 people. And, and so the, the day after that, uh, crowds come back to him. And ask for him to do another sign. Trying to convince him to give them more physical bread. But when Jesus only preaches to them about how he is the bread of life and that by believing in him you will have eternal life, when they heard his message, this is what it says at the end of John 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They left. So this amazing miracle of feeding over 5,000 people did not make the crowds believe in Jesus. They wanted dinner and a show, not a preacher with a message. And so Jesus then turns to his 12 disciples and he asks them this, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus' closest disciples believed in him and continued to follow him. Why? Was it because of the miracles? Not fundamentally. The main reason Peter gives is that Jesus had the words of eternal life. Jesus' message is what convinced them to believe not fundamentally his miracles. 
The message is more powerful than the miracles. And so here we see the fundamental reason why people do not believe in Jesus. People are not fundamentally committed to the truth. Fundamentally, I mean, we all like to think like, oh yeah, I believe what's true. I'm committed to the truth wherever it takes me. But fundamentally, we're not committed to following clear evidence right before our eyes. Fundamentally, people are committed to their own desires more than truth. We believe what we want to believe. And that's why in the face of undeniable truth, of even miracles and supernatural signs, people still decide to go their own way so that they can live how they want to live. Evidence and logic and sound apologetic arguments, they're all important and they have an important place in our witness. But on their own, they will not convince someone to believe in the resurrection of Christ. At our very core, we have a heart problem, a sin problem, a relationship problem with God, not merely a cognitive one. Our hearts need to be changed by God and washed of our sins, and we need to be made alive by the Spirit of God. We must hear Jesus' words of eternal life, and God's Spirit must open our hearts to believe His message. Fundamentally, we need to be saved. So if you're here today, and you're not, not interested in believing unless you see a supernatural sign... A miracle? I want to ask you this question. Have you yet truly considered Jesus' message? Have you sat down at his feet? Not, not just to challenge him to, for him to prove himself, but have you sat down at his feet to genuinely hear from him, to genuinely learn from him, to glean from him wisdom and, 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 and his big purposes, how he speaks, his teachings? Start there. And the Bible promises that if you seek Him, you will find Him if you seek Him with your whole heart. So Jesus condemns the request of the Pharisees. But then He points them to another sign in verses 39 and 40. He said, No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here we see that Jesus is making a connection between himself and the prophet Jonah. Jonah is like Jesus. So what's the sign of Jonah? And why is it so important that this is the only sign that Jesus will give to the Pharisees, to this generation? Scholars have various nuanced ideas about what the sign of Jonah is. Uh, so I'm not going to get into all those nuanced opinions. So I'll kind of speak broadly here. But uh, some say that Jonah's message, uh, Jonah's uh, sign is, is his message of repentance. But I, I don't think that that holds water very well. Um, others 
point to his death-like time in the fish and his resurrection-like exit out, which are prophetic of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and I, I, think that's, I think that's accurate for, for a few reasons. A sign is something miraculous or supernatural. And Jonah's his surviving three days in a fish and being spit out and being alive still, that's exactly that. And Jesus parallels the sign of Jonah with himself, that he too is a sign for his generation. Two men who are signs for their generation in similar ways. In verse 40, Jesus quotes word for word from Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. He quotes word for word from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament of uh, Jonah here. And so he says this. He says, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So that's, that's a direct quote from the Septuagint. And then he parallels himself with Jonah that he, the son of man, will also be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The heart of the earth. It's an interesting phrase that doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, the word heart and the word earth. Uh, perhaps Jonah, uh, Jesus is taking those two words from Jonah chapter 2, from Jonah's prayer. When Jonah says that, that he was, uh, he was in, in the heart of the sea and that he was brought down to the, 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 brought down to the land, the, the earth, uh, of uh, pretty much this, this land of Sheol. So perhaps Jesus is alluding to those, uh, to, to Jonah's prayer right there. But uh, what we can see here is that implied here is, is not only Jesus' death and burial, but then obviously also his resurrection. Because if you were to say that you would only be dead for three days, they would imply that you would be alive after that. Now one question that many people have when they read this is, is why, did Je- why, did, why does Jesus say three days and three nights? Because when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection, you realize that Jesus wasn't in the tomb for three full days and three nights. Technically, he died after the ninth hour on Friday, which was after 3 p.m., and then he was buried right after that. So he was buried for part of Friday, all day Saturday, and then part of Sunday. Uh, so that's that's two nights, but not three. So what's going on here? There's a few good explanations for this, but perhaps the best one that's held by quite a few scholars is that Jesus, he's just using a Jewish idiom. He's using a way of speaking which spoke of, of any part of a day as being spoken of as a whole day. So three days and three nights simply mean a period of time that overlaps three different days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Jesus speaks in a similar way in John chapter 2. It's a similar circumstance too. Uh, Jews come to him and they ask him for a sign. So very similar. And this is how he responds. He says, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple. So he's talking about his own body, himself. He is the temple. So he says, destroy this temple, that's his death, and in three days I will raise it up, his resurrection. So once again, Jesus is pointing to his death and resurrection as a sign. And he isn't saying that that after he's been killed, then 
uh, in 72 hours on the dot, he is going to raise himself up. So, so he's not speaking exactly according to hours. So the phrase, three days and three nights, it's best explained as a Jewish idiom. So Jesus points the Pharisees to the sign of Jonah, which is a prophecy of the sign of Jesus. Two men who are signs to their generations. Just as the fish couldn't keep Jonah in its belly, but vomited him out, so also death could not hold the Son of Man, and he rose to life. This is the ultimate sign. This is the ultimate miracle that Jesus is giving to his generation to validate his authority and his message. And Jesus is giving that same uh, sign, that same sign of his resurrection to every generation, including our own. This is our sign for us. So the question that each one of us must ask is this. What do I think about the sign of the resurrection? What will I do with it? How will I respond to Jesus' death and resurrection? Will I believe in this sign and follow Christ? Or will I reject the sign and turn away? Jesus' resurrection was empirically verified by over 500 witnesses who saw him, many conversed with him, touched him, ate with him, and saw him ascend into heaven. That's over 500 witnesses. And, and many of them died for that truth. Rarely will someone die for something that they know is a lie. And then it's just next to impossible to think that many men and women would, would all be persecuted and die for the same lie without one of them cracking and just admitting that it was all made up. That's just a hoax. It's impossible. So what will you do with this sign? If Jesus rose from the dead, that makes all the difference in the world. Christianity lives or falls on the resurrection. Eternity for you and for me hangs on what we believe about Jesus. If you believe he's alive, then the scriptures are true and Jesus' message is true and it's authoritative and life-changing for each one of us. It's something for us to, to live our whole lives for and, it's, and it's, a, it's a hope that nobody can take away from us. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Eat the bread of life freely offered to you today. And your sins will be forgiven. You'll be welcomed into a new family. And you will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Jonah was like Jesus in a few important ways as we're seeing. But in more ways than not, Jonah was not like Jesus. Jesus is far greater. In verses 41 and 42, Jesus gives two examples that will reveal how shocking it is to, re to reject the sign of Jesus, the greatest person who's ever lived. Let's read with me verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. There is a coming judgment when all will stand before God, the righteous judge. And Jesus says here that the Ninevites and the queen of the south, that's, that is the, the queen of Sheba, they will rise up at the judgment and condemn those who reject Christ because they turned to God and pursued his wisdom through Jonah and, 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 and Solomon, people who don't even hold a candle to Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about Jonah. Jonah, he only proclaimed judgment. But Jesus proclaimed and taught the good news of the gospel of grace. Jonah didn't love the people that he went to to, 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 to preach to. But Jesus loved his own people, even, even though they didn't receive him. And he loved them to the point of even dying for them. Jonah was helpless in the fish, but Jesus conquered death, and he resurrected by his own power. Jesus is the greatest prophet, and he is also the greatest king. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the, the queen of Sheba came to Solomon in a genuine pursuit of wisdom, not, not a fake pursuit like the Pharisees were, were putting on, but what, and what she learned from him, what she saw, it says that her breath was taken away. She recognized wisdom for what it was. And she praised Yahweh for his steadfast love to Israel. And she saw that Solomon was the king appointed by the Lord. That's what she says. That's what she testifies to. Now, now even though Solomon was the wisest king in Israel's history... His wisdom is far surpassed by the wisdom of Jesus Christ. If the queen of Sheba, if she was able to see genuine wisdom in the wisdom of Solomon, then how much more, now that we have been, been given a greater king who has, has greater wisdom, how much more should we see that, recognize it, and believe his message and live for him? So Jesus is the greatest prophet and the greatest king. Now, we, uh, we didn't read it, but earlier in chapter 12, Jesus also said that something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. So in these three ways, he's showing that he is greater than all. He is greater than the temple because he is the final temple and high priest. So in this chapter, Jesus is proclaiming himself to be the greatest prophet, priest, and king. There is no one greater. And so is Jesus the greatest person in your life? Is he the greatest person to you? Is he greater than any person that you admire? Is he greater than your very own desires? Is he greater than, than anything that this world is offering you today? Teenagers and, and kids, here, is, is Jesus greater to you than the opinions of your peers and friends? Do you know the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, your Savior? All other pleasures will fade away. 
All other people will disappoint you. Only Jesus can give you unending peace and joy and hope and a true life. Let me end with something that Jesus says to Thomas after he resurrected in John chapter 20. Thomas, as we as he's famously known for, Thomas, he couldn't believe that Jesus had resurrected unless he unless he touched him with his own hands and saw him with his very own eyes. Thomas was a see it to believe it kind of person. But Jesus granted his request. Jesus was patient with him. He had mercy on him. Thomas, his request, it was a genuine request. Thomas wanted to believe. It was hard for him to believe, but he wanted to believe. And after Jesus showed himself to him and had him touch his, his side and his hands, Jesus then said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus was speaking about us, wasn't he? We have not seen him, but we know him. We have not touched his side, but we are a part of his body. We have not heard his voice, and yet we have heard his message, and we have believed. One day, our faith will be sight. Death will not be able to stomach us. We, too, will see and touch our resurrected Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else will we go? And oh, how we long for that day when we will have resurrected bodies and and we will see you and we will touch you and we will converse with you. We will feast with you. And so we long for that day. Lord Jesus, I pray for each person here that they would believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that that reality, that sign, that miracle would impact every aspect of their lives. Thank you, Lord, that we have a hope that no one can take away from us. So we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, the King of Kings. Amen.